Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Oh, yeah, we're doing great today. Fantastic. So good to see all of you. We are um, just picking up our series, Tearing Down Strongholds. Again, we took a little break last week for Mother's Day. We are basically picking, up, picking it up exactly where we left off a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, we looked at, uh, try to answer this question, um, how do we respond to disappointment in our lives? How do we respond when things don't go the way we wanted it to? And a couple weeks ago, we looked at that stronghold of complaining. That stronghold of complaining that can take root in our hearts. And, and when life doesn't go the way we want it to, a very common response for us is to complain, is to whine about it. And when this becomes our default response, complaining can become a stronghold in our hearts. And we saw that the only way to really battle against this stronghold is to battle at what's at the root of this stronghold, which is unbelief. And we battle against it with God's gifts of lamenting and gratitude. But what I want to talk about today is this. I want to talk about what happens when you don't battle the spirit of complaining in your heart. What happens when you don't battle against that spirit of complaining in your heart? What happens when you allow wave after wave of disappointment in your life to just wash over you and, 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 and we just complain? What happens when we allow that spirit of unbelief to just persist in our hearts? What happens to us? What happens to our lives? What happens to our souls? And let me just tell you, spoiler alert, it's not good. It's not good. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah this morning, uh, a book that features the prophet Jonah, a big fish, a lot of water. I love water. How many of you love living by big water here in Michigan? How many of you is that your favorite thing? I love living by Lake Michigan. I don't love waking up in the middle of May and having it be 30 degrees outside. Hate that, but love living by the water. And even more than living by the water, I love going on the water. I love going on boats and doing like water sports and hanging out on boats. Now, I don't have a boat, but if you have a boat and you're looking for a friend, Ryan at harvestspringlake.org, I'm accepting all invitations for this summer. Calendar's wide open, okay? I love being on boats. I don't love being on like boats when it's really wavy. I got invited one time to be on a small boat and go fishing in the middle of Lake Michigan, and it was really wavy, and I was like, this is not for me. I was researching for this sermon this, this past week, and I came across this couple. Uh, their names were um, Marilyn and Maurice Bailey. How many of you have heard of this couple before? Marilyn and Maurice Bailey, none of you. They were this couple um, from England. They were married in 1963. Um, he was a typesetter, and she was a tax officer. They were just the life of the party, I bet you can imagine. <laughs> so they're married in 1963, the kind of normal, boring life in England. And for them, after about eight years of marriage, they too felt like, ah, oh, this is getting kind of boring. This is boring. And so what they did was they sold their home, and they moved into this smaller apartment. They cut down their costs because they wanted to save up for a boat. And not just any kind of boat to like piddle around on small lakes in England. They wanted a big boat to sail across the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean and make their way all the way to New Zealand and live in New Zealand. Some couples, when things get like boring, they buy a dog. Others pick up a hobby or two. This couple bought a boat to become Magellan and like sail the seven seas. And so they, you know, cut their costs. They save up money. And two years later, they buy this 31-foot yacht and they named this boat Arlen. 
Now, they had minimal sailing experience. They read guidebooks and magazines and, 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 and um, books about sailing, how to survive on the seas. They bought equipment. They bought supplies. And in February of 1973, they set sail from Southampton, England. And their journey took them down south to Spain and then to Portugal and then to the Canary Islands, at which point they refueled and got more supplies and all that stuff. And then they made the longer journey from the Canary Islands all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. But this is where things started to get dicey. They encountered some major storms as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, storms that almost capsized their boat. But thankfully, they had read those magazines and those guidebooks and they made their way all the way to the Caribbean Sea, to the Panama Canal. And they went through the Panama Canal and they stopped in Panama City again to refuel and get more supplies and take a break. And I know many of you, as you are listening to this story right now, you're like, but this story does not end well, does it? So they left Panama City and they went out into the Pacific Ocean. And a couple days into their journey in the Pacific Ocean, they encountered a whaling boat. And that whaling boat passed. And not an hour later, a massive whale came up from underneath their boat and, and created a huge hole in their boat. It hit their boat. And they couldn't repair it. So there, Maurice and Marilyn on their boat, as it's sinking, they inflate their life raft in a dinghy, and they grab as many supplies as they possibly can, and they get into this raft, and within two minutes, their boat had sunk to the bottom of the sea. How would you feel if that was you in that moment? Couples, how would that conversation go in that moment? It would not go well for me and my wife. I, I told you we shouldn't have done this. So did you. They survived off of beans and bottled water for the first couple of weeks, but as the weeks went on, the situation got worse and worse, and they ran out of food. They ran out of water. They had to fish with their hands, and because they couldn't start a fire in their raft, they had to eat those fish raw. They survived, and two months passed. Two months passed, and they finally saw a ship in the distance. And so Maurice went to grab his emergency kit, and he grabbed a flare, and he opened the flare to set it off, and, and, and nothing happened. So then he went back in and he grabbed another flare and he opened that flare up and he went to set that off and nothing happened. And he went back in that emergency kit one more time, grabbed his last flare, opened it up, went to set it off and nothing happened. And that, they tried to yell, they tried to scream and that ship sailed off and there they were alone in the middle of the sea. They had hoped to float down to the Galapagos Islands, but the sea had a different plan for them and continued to take them further north, northwest into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I think the single word that would describe how Maurice and Marilyn Bailey felt in this moment would be despair. Despair. The complete and total loss or absence of hope. Boats sunk, food gone, bodies withering away. This is the end. There is no hope. When we refuse to battle persistent unbelief in our hearts, when we allow disappointment after disappointment, like wave after wave, to wash over us and knock us further adrift from the right belief of who God is and, and, and believing that he will say what he, uh, that he will do what he says he'll do, it will knock us into the middle of the sea of despair. We don't start there, but when we don't battle persistent unbelief in our hearts, 
It's where we end up going. Despair, hopelessness. I know that there are many of you in this room that are in that spot this morning, feeling despair, feeling hopelessness. And my hope is that as we engage with God's word this morning and as his spirit moves, you'd be encouraged out of that place of despair toward a place of hope in our Savior Jesus. But before we jump into God's word, let's pray. Father God, we just ask right now as we approach your word that you would bless our time in your word and that our hearts would be open to receive what you would have for us and that your spirit would begin moving even now. Draw us into your presence right now, God, and help us to see the truth in your word Would you encourage us out of despair toward hope, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So hopefully you're uh, open to Jonah. Now let's start at the very beginning, Jonah chapter one, verse one. Story opens with God commanding Jonah to preach against Nineveh and its wickedness. Chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so Nineveh was the capital city of, of what was the first major world empire called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And Nineveh was hundreds of miles northeast of where Jonah would have been in Israel. In fact, it would have looked like this on a map. Jonah would have been there in the middle. I think that's the orange arrow pointing to where Jonah would have been. And Nineveh would have been northeast of him in the Assyrian Empire. That's where God's calling him to go. But what does Jonah do? Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And I know you're all wanting to say it right now. Say Tarshish. Just say it. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? Tarshish. Jonah clearly doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. He is disappointed He's disappointed by God's call on his life, and so he tries to go as far away as possible from where God was calling him to. God's calling him to his enemies in Nineveh, and he sprints away from them. Jonah goes to this port city in Israel called Joppa. He buys a one-way ticket to the furthest destination. He gets on this ship. He isolates himself while he's on that ship. He goes to the very bottom of the ship, and he falls asleep. And while this ship is journeying across what we would call the Mediterranean Sea, but what they would call the Great Sea back in ancient times, this ship encounters this storm. And the storm is raging all around him, and Jonah is still asleep in the bottom. And so these pagan sailors are freaking out, and they're like, why are the gods so angry at us? What's going on right now? And they're throwing cargo off the side of the ship, and they're trying to keep this thing afloat. One of the guys is like, what about that Jonah guy who boarded this ship? And so they go and get him, and they wake him up, and they bring him up on deck. And they cast lots to find out whose fault is this? And the lot lands on Jonah. And so Jonah explains, he's like, yes, I am an Israelite and I'm running away from God. And in fact, if you want to solve your problem right now, here's what you have to do. Look at verse 12. Look at what Jonah recommends. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He says, kill me. Throw me in the sea and kill me, and that'll solve all your problems. And the sailors are like, dude, that's really dark. We're not going to do that. You're crazy. And they actually don't do it initially. They're like, go back downstairs. You're freaking out right now. And they try to row to shore, but nothing works. And so they're finally like, well, I guess we'll try that now. And verse 15, look what they do. 
So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah was right. Now, this might seem like a selfless act on Jonah's part. Guys, I know this is really rough. Sacrifice me. Uh, I'll take one for the team. But, but this, in this journey of Jonah through chapter one, might be his most selfish act in this um, drive down toward despair. Jonah would rather die than be obedient to God's call in his life. And Jonah, he's gotten suicidal here. Kill me. Throw me overboard, but, but too weak to do anything himself. He asks the sailors to do it for him. He is in a pit of despair. How, how does Jonah get here? How do we get in the same spot of despair and hopelessness? Well, it's really not that complicated. It typically happens in a few stages. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it starts with disappointment. That's the first step uh, on the slippery slope down to despair is disappointment. The road to despair starts with disappointment. And it's important to remember that it's, listen, it's not a sin to be disappointed. Disappointment is normal. Disappointment happens all the time. We're going to disappoint one another. Circumstances are going to happen in our lives that are going to be disappointing. You're going to disappoint me. I'm going to disappoint you. Disappointment is normal. But listen, this is what's important. When we encounter disappointing circumstances in our lives, how our hearts respond to disappointment determines the direction we'll go. How our hearts respond to disappointment determines the direction we will go. Will we go toward God reaching out to him in faith or will we sprint further away from him? What does Jonah do? In his disappointment, he responds by fleeing from God. When we encounter disappointing circumstances, when we encounter disappointing situations, it's important for us to run back to God. We need to view every disappointment that we encounter in our lives essentially as an appointment from God. That he's going to use these things that we encounter for our good to shape us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. We need to believe that by faith when we encounter disappointment. Because when we don't, we're going to end up going further down this slippery slope of um, despair toward the next step, which is discontentment. Discontentment. That's the next stop on the way to despair. And, and, and maybe today you're not in a spot where you're despairing anything. You're not hopeless, but maybe this is where you're at. You're discontent with where you're at. This is when we're unable to find satisfaction or joy without getting what we expected or what we wanted or what we deserved. And we find ourselves in a situation where we're like, why do I have to go through this thing? And if only I wasn't in this situation, then I would finally be able to experience joy. And listen, while, while disappointment is normal and disappointment is not a sin, discontentment is a sin. And discontentment, it is because, because listen, discontentment is ultimately dissatisfaction with where God has you. Discontentment is such a problem because it's ultimately dissatisfaction with what God is doing in your life at any given moment. It's discontentment. It's dissatisfaction with your God. That's why it's a problem. 
And we've allowed this, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this stronghold of complaining to take root in our hearts. And maybe some of us, we take up this sort of self-righteous attitude. Oh, like, I, I don't deserve this. And I've done everything right. And I've been moving forward like I'm supposed to be moving forward. Why is God allowing this in my life? Or maybe we take upon this attitude of self-pity. Like, well, like this, is, this is awful and woe is me. And why do I have to go through with this? What might it be for you? Isn't this where Jonah was by the time he was buying that one-way ticket to Tarshish? He's like, I can't believe that God would, why would God ask me to do this? Why would God ask me, a, a faithful prophet of God here in Israel, to, to journey hundreds of miles into enemy territory? Why would he do that? That's so disappointing for me. I don't want to do that. And, and, and so he, he, he bought a one-way ticket, fleeing the presence of God, thinking that, listen, he thought that if I change my circumstances, if I change my situation, then I'll find contentment. And how many of us have done the same thing where we think, if I change my situation... If I get a new house or a new job or a new spouse or a new whatever and I change what's going on around me, then I'll finally feel content. Here's the problem with that, though. You can try to outrun your situation, but you can't outrun your heart. You take that with you. And until you see that change, until you see that transform, you will bring that discontentment and that bitterness and that anger with you. You will be bitter and angry at God in Joppa or Nineveh or Tarshish until you deal with the heart problem. And until you deal with the heart problem, you will continue to tumble down that slippery slope of despair and end up in that final destination where God doesn't want you to be, which is despair. It's despair. The Greek word for despair means no way out. It means no way through. And, and maybe, maybe this Maybe this is what you're feeling right now. Whatever it is you're going through in your life right now that you feel like there is no way out and you feel like there's no way through and you feel trapped, you are stuck in your disappointing circumstances. And listen, despair, despair is such a difficult stronghold because the presence of despair in your heart means that there is an absence of faith in God, that he is able to change your situation or use your situation for your good and for his glory. And you've gotten to the spot where you're so blinded by your disappointment, you're so rooted in your discontentment that you don't see a way out. Despair. You know, I might be a little biased, but my wife wrote what I thought was a pretty good blog post on despair on our church's blog. And she shared in that blog a little bit of our story from her perspective from about five years ago when we were going through a pretty hopeless situation. And, and she wrote about this, and she wrote about some of the behaviors and actions that typify someone who is um, hopeless, someone who is rooted in this stronghold of despair, and maybe you're not even aware that you're in this spot right now. And so let me share with you a few of these behaviors and attitudes that are true of people who are struggling with hopelessness, who are struggling with despair. Those who are, those who are in this place, they, they begin to give up on their responsibilities. And you begin to just sort of check out. Those who are in this place believe they're victims. They've done nothing to deserve the circumstance or situation that they're currently in. They're often tearful. They cry easily when they talk about these circumstances and these situations, their hardship, their hopelessness, their despair. They cry easily. Everything's negative. Everything is glasses half empty. Everything is very pessimistic. Those in this hopeless place, um, you might be here if you are isolating yourself. 
and you're withdrawing from other people and your normal patterns of socialization, you're changing those things and, and you're just sort of isolating yourself in your own bubble. You grow shy, self-conscious. Listen, if you identify with these behaviors, then the stronghold of despair might have already taken root in your heart or you might be heading there if some of these things are true about you. And isn't, as, as chapter one unfolds with Jonah, isn't this exactly the path that Jonah takes? I mean, he's like, he takes that victim mentality of like, why, why, why would God do this to me? And then he isolates himself and he leaves his home. He leaves his family. He leaves his synagogue and travels as far away as he possibly can. And then once he's on that boat, he doesn't hang out with the sailors. He isolates himself from those sailors and sleeps in the bottom of the boat. And if things couldn't get any worse, then at the end there, he becomes suicidal at the end asking those sailors to throw him overboard because, listen, it doesn't end with despair. Despair eventually leads to destruction, destruction of one's life. This is where Jonah was as he's being thrown over the edge of that ship, hits the water, and is essentially saying, thinking, this is certain death. For Jonah in that moment, like think about the despair he must have been feeling that, that like sinking to the bottom of the sea and dying was better than being obedient to God. But God had other plans for him. God doesn't let him off the hook that easily. In fact, he might as well have been on the hook. Get it? Sorry, I just had to. I just had to. Dad joke, had to lighten that moment right there. Verse 17, look what happens. We all know what happens. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Listen, and I think this is so important for us in the midst of this conversation. Jonah might have given up on God, but God had not given up on Jonah. And maybe you're in a spot where you, you, you are hopeless and there is despair and you've been running away from God. You've been sprinting away from the Lord, doing what you want, when you want, how you want it. And isn't it funny as we sprint away from the Lord, how the Lord just relentlessly pursues after you? And that job begins to fall apart and that relationship begins to fall apart and that health begins to fall apart. And before you know it, your ship is wrecked and you are isolated in the middle of the sea with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And God's like, I got you. Listen, because some of you need to hear this this morning. You may have given up on God, but God has not given up on you. He hasn't. He hasn't. In your hopelessness, he has not given up on you, and he sees you in your plight, and he is near to the brokenhearted. He is. And even when we are faithless, our God remains faithful because he is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of hope and a God whose love is steadfast and unconditional. That is our God. And he will go to extraordinary lengths to bring you back to himself, to redeem you from that pit of despair. He will go so far as to have you get swallowed by a big old fish, put you in timeout. Just what he did to Jonah. And listen, I, can you just imagine like how humbling that would have been for Jonah? He's like, this is it. This is the end. And then all of a sudden, where am I now? I'm in a fish. Okay. And, and, and so think about what, what would have been going through his mind in that moment, alone, with his thoughts, with the Lord, with whatever the fish was digesting in the moment, you know, like just chilling there. And what did he do? The text says he was there for three days, three nights. 
And what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He reaches out to God. And what I love about this prayer in chapter 2 is that I think it provides for us a model, a template, an example for us to move forward in and climb out of that pit of despair. And so what I want us to do right now, what I want to do is I want to read through this prayer in its entirety, and then I want to draw some things out of this prayer that would help us climb out of despair if that's where we find ourselves this morning. So follow along with me as I read uh, through Jonah 2 right now, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And the waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a prayer from the mouth of Jonah. What a change of heart in Jonah. And if we want to climb out of despair, uh, here's the first thing that we need to do, just like Jonah, in order to climb out of despair. Um, I must reach out to God. I have to reach out to God. You have to make the choice to turn back to God and reach out to him, even if you don't feel like it, even if it feels like God is so far away from you. Jonah, in the belly of that fish, reaches out to God. He cries out to God. He passionately pleads with the Lord. And what's so cool and so interesting about this prayer is that throughout this prayer, uh, we see eight different psalms. Jonah incorporates eight different psalms into this prayer. And what's so important here to see is that what Jonah does in his time of despair is he prays the very words of God back to God. And we have to do the same thing. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, that when we're in a difficult spot, when, when life is disappointing, God wants us to complain, but complain his way. And so would we pray the prayers of lament back to God? God wants us to cultivate a heart of gratitude. And so would we pray his prayers of thanksgiving back to God? And throughout God's word, we see God's promises. And we know in God's word that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so if you've placed your faith in hope and Jesus, all of those promises are yours whether it feels like it or not. And so in your place of despair, as you reach out to God, take hold of those promises, mind, mind God's word for those promises, and tell God, God, I need you to keep your word. And reach out to him by faith. Cry out to God. But not just that, in order to climb out of despair, here's the next thing we need to do. I need to identify the cause of my despair. 
Identify the cause, the source of my despair. And then this is so important because oftentimes when you feel despair, maybe you feel this right now, or maybe you can remember what despair feels like, but isn't it such a vague feeling? And it's just sort of this fog-type feeling in our hearts. You ever been driving on the highway and you encounter, like, I don't, I don't know what you call it, but like a fog storm? Like, you hit fog and you have to, like, slow down your car? You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, you, you, you can't even navigate forward anymore. you got to slow down your car. Sometimes you have to pull off the side of the road because of the fog. And listen, if you're dealing with despair and you don't know the source of your despair, you have to identify that and bring that before the Lord. This is what Jonah does from verses 3 through verses 6. He just talks about his situation that is causing him despair. So I want to look at a couple of these things, and maybe you can identify with some of these things and, and, and really get at the root or the cause of what's causing you hopelessness, what's causing you despair. You know, one of the first things he says, essentially, is I'm, I'm, I'm heading toward rock bottom. I'm, I'm heading toward rock bottom. And Jonah says in, in verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep. And maybe you're in a place right now where you're just like at an all-time low. Or, or you just keep sinking lower and lower and lower and lower. I'm heading to the bottom. I'm at the bottom. When you feel as low as you possibly can go, that's going to naturally make you feel hopeless, despair. Another one, I'm out of control. I'm out of control. After that, Jonah says, you cast me into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. Another translation I looked at said that the waters churned all around me. And, you know, have you ever been at, like, one of those water parks at, like, a wave pool? And, like, maybe you're a kid and the waves are crashing over you and you're like, this is out of control and this is the end. This is it. I'm going to die. You know, is it, am I the only one who has that traumatic childhood memory? I've got someone up here. Like, you're just like, how are these things legal? You know, like, does it, does your life feel like that? Like, the waters are churning all around you and it just feels like you're out of control. Your life has activity, but there's no uh, clarity. There's emotion in your life, but no meaning. There's pressure that you feel, but there's no purpose. And you're like on that raft in the middle of the sea, cast to and fro, and it's just so out of control. That can lead you to feel hopelessness and despair. Another one, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, kind of similar to that last one. Jonah says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And so maybe this is just a sense of like, this situation exceeds my capacity. I can't handle this. My finances can't handle this. The strength of my relationship can't handle this. My mental capacity, I can't handle this right now. This is too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. It can lead to despair. I'm rejected or lonely. Jonah prays, he says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And maybe you feel so rejected or so lonely, you feel far from God. We just spent that time singing those songs to the Lord, and as everyone's singing, and maybe people are raising their hands and singing out loud, and you're just standing there, and you're like, I don't get it. I don't feel the presence of God in my life, and I feel all alone. And maybe you feel rejected by people in your lives, relationships that were once dear to you, and you're rejected, and you're lonely. Listen, loneliness can lead to hopelessness. Loneliness can lead to despair. Another one, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Jonah prays, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I mean, this is a terrifying picture of a man trapped underwater. Weeds wrapped around his head. Some translations even include those words. And I was afraid. 
Maybe your circumstances, your situation is causing so much fear and anxiety that you wake up thinking about it, just so anxious, and as you put your head on your pillow at night, you can't fall asleep because you're thinking about it and you're worrying about it and you're so afraid. Listen, that will lead to despair. One more thing. I'm trapped. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It feels like you're in a prison. Remember the Greek word for despair, no way out, no way through. And this is where you feel like you are right now. And listen, as you can begin to identify with one or two or more or maybe all of these things in your life right now, you know, once you, once you do that and identify those things, would you pray about these things specifically? Cry out to God and be like, Lord, my life is out of control. Lord, I feel so overwhelmed. God, I am, I'm rejected. I feel lonely right now. Lord, would you do something about this? But listen, our eyes can't stay fixed on the source of our despair. We must then turn our eyes and fix them on the goodness of God. That's the next thing. We need to fix my eyes on the goodness of God. Look at verse 7 again. Jonah prays this. He says, when my life was fainting away, like it's almost over, I'm in despair. He says, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so Jonah's reached bottom. Despair has taken root. His life is failing. He's on the verge of death and he remembers God. And now listen, this isn't like he remembered him and he's like, I totally forgot about that guy. I should give that guy a call. Phone a friend, you know? No, no, no. This remembering of God is a complete reversal. It's I'm going to stop running away from the Lord, and I'm making a total 180, a spiritual, mental, emotional return back to God because I know he is good. And I know that even though I have sprinted away from him, even though I'm in the middle of, of this situation that's causing me despair, I know he hears me because he is faithful. And because he is good. Listen, once we identify the cause of despair in our lives, we need to bring that before God and, and plead with him, knowing that in his goodness, he will change the circumstance or he will change us, knowing and believing by faith that he will use whatever we're going through for our good and for his glory. We have to believe that and fix our eyes on our God. We need to take our eyes off of our circumstances and place our eyes on our Savior. We need to take our mind off of our worries and we need to place them on his word. We need to, and I know this analogy is like breaking down as time goes on, but change the channel in our minds. We need to change the channel in our minds as we see that we are playing that feedback loop again and again of the thing that's causing us despair, despair and we need to fix our eyes on the goodness of God. Here's the fourth thing we need to do. We need to reject idols and accept God's grace. Reject idols and accept God's grace. We need to reject the cheap substitutes in our lives that overpromise and underdeliver, and we need to lean into God's steadfast love. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When we turn to creation instead of the creator, we sacrifice our ability to experience God's grace and his steadfast love in our lives. When we embrace idols, and again, remember, an idol can be anything. 
An idol can be a good thing. An idol can be a bad thing. An idol can be a neutral thing. An idol is anything in our lives that we turn into a God thing. Something that we think we need to sustain us, to bring us joy. It can be a relationship. It can be your spouse, a kid, your bank account, your job. What might that be in your life that you are leaning into in your moment of despair? God's word calls us to reject those things and to turn to God as the only one who can sustain us and give us strength and redeem us out of our pit of despair. We need to reject idols and accept God's grace. And one more thing, in order to climb out of despair, we are called to express our hope in worship. We are called to, by faith, be obedient and express our hope through worship. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Jonah prays this. He, He says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, because salvation belongs to the Lord. So first of all, what we see in this last part of Jonah's prayer is the importance, again, of gratitude, of thanksgiving. And listen, as we express gratitude to God, that's worship. Gratitude is worship for what God has done. And when we find ourselves in a pit of despair, when we find ourselves in darkness, listen, as we navigate through those dark times, we can't forget in the darkness what God has shown us in the light. We need to remember those things and be grateful and worship God for his faithfulness to us in the past. But listen, where is Jonah right now? Where is he? Where is he as he's praying this part of his prayer? Where is he? He's in the fish still. He's he's still stuck. But listen, he is believing by faith that God has a bigger plan and a better purpose for him in the midst of what he's going through. And listen, while gratitude is is worship for what God has done in the past, faith, expressing our faith in God, is, 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 is worship for what God will do in the future. And we need to look back and remember God's faithfulness and believe then by faith that he will come through again, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he'll do. We need to express our hope in worship. And, and Jonah finds himself in this spot where he does it. And God does eventually take him to land, delivers him, the fish spits him back up on dry land. And he goes and he preaches that message of of, of mercy and repentance to his enemies. He goes into enemy territory and he does that. But listen, I can't help but but, but read this story of Jonah and encounter this story of, of Jonah Jonah called, this prophet of God called to go into enemy territory and preach this message of hope and grace and salvation. This Jonah who was trapped in the belly of this whale for three days and three nights. I can't help but read the story and hear the echoes of the story of Jesus in it. And Jesus, the one who was with God for all eternity past, coming down into enemy territory and bringing a message of hope and grace and salvation. 
And you think about this Jesus who lived a perfect life, but the night before he was going to be nailed to that sinner's cross and die the death of a criminal, pleading with God in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord God, Father, if there is any other way, would you make that way available to me? Not my will, but yours be done. And And he prayed in that garden and he faced despair. He faced despair, but unlike us who would so often give in to despair, Jesus did not give in to despair. He remained obedient. He placed his faith in his Father, and he was obedient to the point of death. The death that we deserved, he took upon himself. And I also can't help but think of the disappointment that his friends, that his followers, think of his mother, Think of the disappointment they would have felt the day after he died. Think of the despair that would have like permeated their hearts and their homes in that moment. There's the sense of loss, like the disappointment, like this, this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. We had better plans. We were going to do stuff, and, and he's gone. Think of the despair they would have felt. But then I also can't help but think of the joy the relief, the excitement they would have felt as their risen Savior would have walked into the room, the same Jesus who was nailed to that cross, now alive in his resurrected body. Think of the joy. Think of the hope that they would have felt in that moment. There he was right before them. Proof, proof that sin had lost its grip on creation. Proof that sin had lost its grip on on you and me. Proof, listen, proof Uh, that disappointment and and sin and, and despair and hopelessness do not have the final word in your life. It doesn't. Because Jesus, our risen Savior, is living proof that despair does not have the last word for the follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't. Because we have Jesus He won. He is our living hope. You know, I know I left you hanging on the Baileys. I bet you're wondering, how are the Baileys doing, you know? (laughs) Floating around in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, Well, things things didn't get better for them for a long time. Like weeks and weeks and weeks passed. And and, and it was not looking good for them until um, this South Korean fishing boat passed through and it saw in the horizon some object. And I was like, we got to change course and find out what that is. And so they changed course and they went to that object and and lo and behold, it was the Baileys. And they were alive. And they brought them onto the boat and they couldn't walk and and they barely talked when they got onto the boat. And the medical examiner checked both of them out and they were both down 40 pounds a piece. But apart from that, they were fine. And and they they fed them and they they said that when they brought them on, on the boat, they just... They wept. They wept. That's all they could do was cry because they couldn't believe they had been saved. What was a hopeless situation, they were lost at sea for 118 days. 118 days. And, and, and saved, though, redeemed from that situation of despair. And listen, I get that, that, that many of you are going through what seems like a hopeless situation right now. Maybe you're on day seven, 
Maybe you're on day 60. Maybe you're on day 100. Maybe you're on day 117. Listen, abandon your despair. Abandon your hopelessness and place your faith and your hope in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on his goodness. Reject those idols and embrace his grace. And in just a moment, let's, let's, let's stand and, and we'll sing and we'll express our hope to him, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. We're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your spirit, even now as your spirit ministers to our hearts and encourages us. And Lord, I just pray for individuals who are, are really stuck in that stronghold of despair and hopelessness right now. And I, I pray, God, that, that through our time together, they would not feel discouraged by where they're at, but God, would, would by your grace, um, they feel encouraged. Would they feel a sense of hope? And even now in, in their fatigued state, feeling like they can't place their faith in you, God, I, I just pray, Lord, I pray that your spirit would already begin to fill them with the strength to be able to place faith in you right now. Would they be able to take that first step right now and reach out to you in their pain and in their suffering and in their loneliness? Or for some of us, we're going to be called to rally around those that we know are hopeless and despairing. And so God, I, I pray uh, that you would give us wisdom and discernment and the right words to speak to those individuals. And Lord, as we are about to stand and sing together, God, I pray that um, as we express our hope to you, God, would you meet us here again and fill us with your uh, love and, and your compassion as we sing the, this next song and, and are sent out from this place to be representatives of your kingdom. We pray this in your son's powerful name.